Welcome to the Aviation Scopecast. In this monthly podcast, we cover current events that impact the aviation industry. And whether it is the manufacturers, the airlines, the financial markets, or just little bits and pieces we stumbled upon, all of it has a chance of being featured on here. Who are we, you might ask? I'm Helen Spro, responsible for the aircraft financing sector at Scope Ratings, and with a background in structuring and arranging aircraft financing transactions. And I am Frank Netscher. I work at Scope Analysis, where we cover real assets from an equity perspective. There, I am responsible for all transportation-related assets. Together, Helen and I aim to get you as enthusiastic about aviation as we are. Please keep in mind that our statements reflect our personal opinion, not necessarily Scope's view on the topics covered. With that being said, let's get started. Welcome to Flight 3. We are back again to talk about interesting developments or occurrences that have happened in aviation lately. But first, and as always, we will go back in time and see what happened in November in the past. We sure will, Frank. Um, so tell us, which event has spiked your interest this month? Well, after a bit of research, I actually went back to the beginning, literally the very beginning, um, because November was the month in which the first airline was founded that used an aircraft in commercial service. And we're talking 1909 here. DELAC, which, which is the name of the company, they operated Zeppelin airships and it also was a German company. And as mentioned, it was founded in 1909 and then began operations in June 1910. And it was up and running for a bit, and it, it ceased its operations in 1935. Um, and an interesting fact is that the idea was born a bit out of necessity. So, so Delag was trying to obtain orders from the German army, but really wasn't too successful in doing so. So, so they thought about exploiting the German public's interest for everything flying-related instead, and they established a commercial passenger-carrying company. And guess what? It worked. Well, well, somewhat. So, um, but Helen, um, can you guess how much their first Zeppelin could lift and how, how fast it could travel and what its capacity was? Well, uh, how, uh, you mean how many people, for instance? Yeah, so, how many people yeah. and, and uh, how fast it could travel as well, yeah. Well, yeah, guessing out of the blue, maybe it could carry about 30 people, 40 people, and let's say it could make, yeah, 100 kilometers an hour. Both were, both were actually close-ish, if that is a word. Um, <laughs> uh, so the, no, the first Zeppelin they had a, had a capacity or an accommodation for 24 passengers, so so very close, and the cruising speed was uh, 50 kilometers per hour. Um, so given this performance, if you if you can call it that, it was um, realized that the scheduled intercity services would not be feasible. So the company was in the beginning limited to offering pleasure cruises in the vicinity of their bases. But however, um, ranges and capacity were improved. So by July 1914, um, Dirac had transported actually more than 30,000 passengers and over, in over one and a half thousand commercial flights, all within Germany. And to, to wrap this rather long fact up, in um, September 1928, DLAC began operating regular, non-stop transatlantic flights before airplanes set even flight ranges sufficient to, to uh, cross the ocean. That's impressive, actually. But I would have to say, though, like uh, 50 kilometers an hour, then you could you could take your car as well, couldn't you? Slightly well, safer, not probably. in 1909. 
Oh no, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, always also depending on the wind, obviously. Um, so these these transatlantic flights, I mean, they differed greatly in in their length. But um, no, I mean, it was the first commercial aviation service, so I thought I'd give them kudos and a shout out on this episode. But um, what about you? What what did you find looking into history? Yeah, my, mine is a bit closer in time and, <laughs> and also a bit Scandinavian. Uh, so <laughs> in November 1989, Scandinavian Airlines, they actually banned smoking on uh, many of their flights oh, for the first yes. time. And you can ima- imagine the outrage from the, yeah, from the smokers that how are they now going to survive, like taking the <laughs> long haul flights and not be allowed to smoke. Well, but how I think, are they like, going to survive by not smoking, guys? Seriously. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think uh, the majority of us today, even, even those that smoke, uh, are slightly appreciative that you can't smoke inside an aircraft, especially on long, uh, long haul flights. Yeah, I could. I couldn't imagine. I mean, I I remember visiting my dad in the office when I was a kid. Uh, side note: Yes, I'm that old. And people were smoking in the office, and uh, it was completely normal. Um, I think it changed. Yeah, and in the eighties, end of eighties, must have changed because when when we were teenagers, everybody was smoking and it was so cool. Yeah. And now uh, no one is smoking basically. So so great development and. So um, again, a shout out to to Scandinavian Airways um, for the for being the first to 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 tackle this. Yes, I I have to say though I'm not sure they were the first, uh, but I got caught just, up in the fact because it's Scandinavian pre- Airlines. Let's just you know. pretend they were the first. Let's do, let's do, <laughs> give them credit for something they might not deserve <laughs> it for, but you know. Eh, that's how we roll here. <laughs> so um, yeah, always the question that was history. This is now. So, so Helen, what's on today's episode? On today's episode, we will discuss climate change and the effect it, uh, it has had on the industry so far and also potentially in the future. In addition, we'll see more consolidation in the industry uh, with the ima- uh, announcement that IAG has bought Air Europa. And so we'll brush a bit on this topic today again. But first, uh, we have again received quite a few questions from our listeners, and I wasn't sure which one to pick, uh, but after hearing your historical uh, fact, Frank, I believe that the following is indeed the most appropriate uh, to address. Well, 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 color me intrigued, but um, I'm also no longer convinced that it was a good idea to let you be in charge of this month's request. (laughs) It's always a good idea, Frank. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, um, yeah, uh, I think you like discussing this topic. So let me read you the listener's question of the month. So the question is, how did commercial aviation really start? Uh, how did the industry become an industry? Yeah, okay, I, I, I give you this one. That, uh, that is a rather good question, but um, maybe not for the reason some of you might think. And I don't know, hear, hear me out. Um, many of us working in aviation probably focus more on the future than we do on the past. And this is also a reason why we came up with our segment on historical aviation facts. And well, yeah, as I mentioned in my historical fact, the, the first commercial flight actually happened all the way back in 1910. And this was when commercial airlines were born. The, the name might have long been forgotten. Uh, not, not at all, uh, Frank. 
And I actually got some facts for you that might make you proud. No, 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 not really. <laughs> so you you probably already know this, but the airline that you mentioned in your historical fact is actually a German airline, mm -hmm. and it's named Deutsche Luftschifffahrtsaktiengesellschaft Eins. <laughs> But uh, to avoid having to show off my Norwegian-sounding German, uh, let's just call them D-lag. <laughs> not, not bad, not bad. And as um, practically every German word, it needs an abbreviation to, to be used in spoken language. Though I have to add, it's actually three words. Um, and if I remember correctly, D-lag, not D-lag, D-lag, being <laughs> pedantic here, was actually headquartered in Frankfurt, so just like you, Helen, as well. And um, I also just saw the other day that KLM was uh, celebrating 100 years, which is an impressively long time. And I, I think they started operations in October 1919, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I read that as well, Frank. Um, mm -hmm. KLM is the oldest commercial airline still operating. Yeah, that, that, that's a very cool fact. And, and, and also, seemingly, um, Avianca, uh, Qantas and Czech Airlines are also in the club of, of some of the currently existing early airlines. And no, I definitely um, couldn't have answered that if it was a trivia quiz. <laughs> Me neither. Um, and I believe you're uh, right there, Frank. I trust your, your fact there. But um, commercial aviation has had an impressive growth uh, since DELAG uh, transported their <laughs> passengers in the Zeppelins. Um, so already in 1920, uh, a year after KLM was founded, we saw a similar trend to today's market, actually where smaller airlines struggled uh, to compete and there was a movement towards consolidation. And what actually happened was that uh, an airline called Imperial Airways was formed in 1924 and it was a merger between Eyestone um, Airline Company, um, British Marine Air Navigation, Daimler Airway and Handley Page Transport to compete with the stiff competition uh, from the French and the German airlines. Yeah, yeah. Wasn't it with a lot of shouting that the French and German airlines enjoyed government subsidies that, that made the competition unfair? So, well, it seems like, like aviation today still travels in the footsteps of, of its history and nothing has really changed. Very true. Um, yeah, the consolidation seemed to have been uh, successful, uh, at least in the past. So, maybe we should uh, yeah, keep moving in that direction. Um, the global expansion of commercial air travel uh, could actually have been said to start around 1926, um, when Imperial Airways started their first routes from, um, I believe it was uh, the UK to Cape Town, and then it was followed by another flight, which was also UK to Melbourne. Oh my, mm, rather yeah. long haul, yeah. <laughs> it was, and uh, that early as well. Um, mm -hmm. But um, the industry in Europe uh, first truly evolved when we saw a deregulation of the European Union airspace in, um, it, it was in the early 1990s, I believe. And um, after, after this deregulation, that's when um, low-cost airlines and short-haul flights really saw a massive, massive growth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. We, as, as Europeans, we were a bit late to the party and uh, compared to the U.S. Um, and this is also why we have to read all the, the Harvard Business School case studies on the deregulation of the U.S. aviation industry. But, but in Europe, it, it had a large impact on making flying affordable to, um, so that the average person on the street could use it as a mean of transportation. 
And it also has to be said that, that air travel in its history has largely survived on different types of state support. And I mean, in its more than 100 year history, the, the industry as a whole, it, it, has a made a, it has made a cumulative loss, except from, from the last couple of years, that is. Yeah, that's true. And we've, we've also seen how the industry has tried to adapt to market changes. But to change such a complex industry and slow industry as commercial aviation is really taking its toll on the airline, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of with, with logistical needs like transporting mail between countries and regions. And um, another trend we saw was the interest in supersonic aircraft, uh, aircraft, actually. The faster the better was the MO. And we talked about the, the Concorde and the Tupolev on our October episode. Uh, October flight, sorry, <laughs> but oil prices increased dramatically in the in the 70s, and this this played its role in never making the Concorde really affordable to 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 the normal public. So, um, but however, following in, following the the quite steady decrease in in oil prices then in the 80s and 90s, it really helped in establishing commercial aviation as the means of transportation, but. Also, the two Iraq wars and, of course, 9-11 always showed that the industry has always been vulnerable to, to external shocks. It has. And, yeah, after the events that you mentioned later on again, the oil prices, they, yeah, they spiked again. Mm -hmm. And what we saw then in the market was the need for fuel-efficient aircraft. And but that's sort of the issue with aviation is that development of a new aircraft is not done in one day. Yeah, so, you call it a slow, slow-moving industry. I completely agree. Yeah. yeah, very slow-moving, and it's just because of the basics with the industry. Mm -hmm. um, and an example of this that I thought of was that Airbus they launched a three twenty Neo in two thousand and ten, um, and at that time, crude prices, crude oil prices, they averaged the year around yeah, if US dollar eighty a barrel, I believe, mm, and. Then all the airlines, they placed the, their orders uh, as the oil prices actually remained high for quite a bit. Mm -hmm. But then after the launch, it took uh, um, Airbus six years to actually make the first delivery of the NEO. And yeah. the first... And even uh, today, we're happy when we get one, yeah. Exactly, yeah. That's true as well. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, the, uh, actually, the day before the first NEO uh, was introduced into service on the 20th of January 2016, the oil prices then crashed to US dollar 27 a barrel. One day before, yeah, <laughs> the first delivery. <laughs> Good timing, that is. And, and one would also think that this must have had a massive impact on the, on the value of the aircraft. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think it did at the time, to be honest, okay. uh, because... Aircraft prices have already been negotiated, I assume, between the airlines yeah, and Airbus, yeah. mm -hmm. and they weren't related necessarily to oil price increase, even though the, the background for the airlines uh, actually ordering these aircraft was the fuel efficiency of them. Um, but of course, if you look at the market value of the NEO uh, uh, today, the higher the oil prices, the higher a premium a NEO will have compared to a CEO. Mm -hmm. But it just shows that because developing a new aircraft uh, that's full of secure entrants in the market can take yeah five, six, seven years. And by the time it's delivered in the market then, the market might require something completely different than they did when it was launched. Yeah, yeah, and you can see it in the in the market even today as well. The the newer and more fuel efficient aircraft um, are now 
offered in the market, like the NEO, like the MAX, um, well, yeah, the NEO. <laughs> but when the airlines finally receive those aircraft, a newer market trend or issue may have arisen. So in this case, namely um, ESG and the, the need for environmentally friendly air travel. Very true, Frank. And that's a, that's a smooth uh, progress into our next topic, actually, uh, <laughs> namely climate change and what impact this will have on the industry. Uh, but as history shows, it's difficult for the aviation industry to stay ahead of market trends and more difficult than for many other industries, I would argue. And therefore, our next topic is climate change and the effect it has on the aviation industry. So, um, where do we stand now and yeah, what does the future hold? That's the question, Frank. Um, if you can give me the answer, I'll gladly listen. But um, yeah, as you know, like it's difficult to predict. Um, firstly, though, I think it's important to point out that commercial aviation is only to blame for around two, yeah, two point seven percent of the world's global carbon emission, and two point seven percent, you could say, is too too much. But it's still important to keep. Keep it in perspective, you know, when looking at the industry and the bigger picture. Yeah, that, that's the thing, though. Um, I mean, both the automotive and aviation industry, they, they have gotten a lot of focus and scrutiny for their emissions, and, and rightly so, I might add. But um, there are other industries, um, such as, for example, shipping or, or real estate, especially the latter, they, and they have gotten off the hook rather lightly for now. Oh, true, actually. Like, I, I feel like I need to lift my head a bit out of aviation and pay a bit more attention to other asset classes. But you do that all the time, uh, Frank. So w why don't you tell me what I don't know, what are sort of the secrets about the other asset classes and industries? <laughs> well, I wouldn't call it a secret, um, but let's let's um, stay with the last example. The the real estate industry is they are, is they are responsible for a lot more greenhouse gases than, than aviation. And I believe the, the sector has one of the highest carbon footprints and it contributes roughly 30% of global annual greenhouse gas emissions and it consumes around 40% of the world's energy. I mean, let that sink in. Um, but also making comprehensive and substantial reductions throughout the sector is a daunting prospect. I mean, it is common knowledge that the existing properties are in urgent need of yeah, a mass retrofits to, to reduce energy consumption However, I mean, the carbon emitted to complete this retrofit must, must also be considered as well. Um, and on the other hand, um, shipping is an important topic as well. Um, those ships run mostly on a particularly dirty type of fuel known as heavy fuel oil or, or bunker fuel. It's thick and, and when it burns, it emits sulfur and also greenhouse gases, of course. Um, and there was the quote somewhere that said, um, if, if shipping was a country, it would be the sixth largest polluter in the world. Um, but I, I believe this is almost level with the, with the aviation sector. Kai, so you're saying that shipping and aviation uh, are approximately equally as Yeah, yeah, I believe I read some, somewhere that, that shipping contributes uh, 3%, so you, you said 27 for aviation, so, I mean, let's call it a wrap and, and put them on, on, on a level playing field. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a surprise to hear about the real estate, I would have to say, mm -hmm. and also then uh, it's a surprise how much focus we then put on shipping and aviation. Yeah, but of I, course, I mean, all the real estate managers are very happy about that. 
the diesel scandal, I, they love it. Uh, aviation, oh, they love it. Uh, sulfur cap now for, for ships, mm, they they are just, yeah, let those others take the first hits and no one talks about us and we actually use 40% of the energy, but hey, let them tackle the other guys first. Yeah, uh, it makes sense, so I would also sit, yeah, sit back uh, quietly if it was my industry. But... Um, I think like even though, yeah, then let's say that shipping and aviation in total then is uh, to blame for about 6% mm -hmm. of the carbon emission, um, which isn't the most, but it's still um, something that's important to sort of, um, uh, yeah, um, to, to try to, to try to sort out. And as an aviation advocate, like I'm happy to see that the aviation industry seems to take this issue quite seriously. Um, Many, of course, do it because they're scared of uh, the financial impact it could potentially mm -hmm. have on their yeah. business, which is understandable. Um, but some, or hopefully many, uh, also do it for the good of the world and for the climate. Um, and a few weeks ago, I actually attended ING's Aviation Day here in Frankfurt. And I was very surprised and happy to see that many uh, that the main topic of the conference was actually climate change and the impact it has on our industry. And it's great to see uh, the focus of on the issue. Um, and I also learned um, during this day that there are several measures taken to decrease aviation's carbon footprint. And one of them, which I found very fascinating, is um, a company that is called Sky Energy, which has developed sustainable aviation fuel, which okay. can actually be used as a substitute for fossil jet fuel. Mm -hmm. and, and I've also heard that several other companies are working on similar initiatives. Well, okay, definitely sounds like a step in the right direction, of course, but, um, but of course we need, I mean, we need more initiatives as they probably can supply the whole world, at least, and well, at least obviously not today. Um, but we also should not forget technology in other sectors. Um, even though we do like flying, I, I have noticed during my career that many meetings could have also been done via, for example, video conferencing. And I think that the more technologically advanced we get, the, the less we have to travel. Take this podcast for an example. We are actually not sitting in the same room. And we True. hope that you don't notice. Um, <laughs> so, and so this um, less amount of travel, we, we hope that it will have a positive impact on um, especially business travel's carbon footprint. Yeah, I agree with you there, Frank. Um, and I have great hope uh, for technology. And I must admit that I'm not brave, uh, as brave as Greta Thunberg, uh, so I would rather have a Skype call with my clients in New York than to sail across the Atlantic. <laughs> Um, and uh, there are unfortunately some places today, uh, even in sort of in your area, where you can't go by train. Yeah, but hey, maybe one day you will be able to take a train from from Frankfurt to New York. <laughs> um, Hopefully, <laughs> ask Elon Musk about that probably. But um, that's that is the issue today. Even even though you can reach many places by train, the the infrastructure just really isn't there. Um, I mean, in Germany, for example, the, the high-speed trains, they run on the same tracks as the regional trains and freight trains, and they stop every 30 minutes at some, some random village. Okay, uh, 30 minutes might be exaggerating it a bit, but it's, it's no, mostly... No, Frank, it's not yeah, exaggerating. I, I was looking for something <laughs> nice to say, but um, 
Okay, so yeah, they stop at every random village, um, and it's so it's mostly cheaper and also quicker to 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 fly from Berlin to Munich or even from Berlin to Frankfurt, and it really shouldn't be this way. No, it shouldn't, and that's exactly the issue and the frustration. Um, I believe though that to keep focus on the topic at conferences, in the media, in podcasts like this, and when we discuss with the industry, um, that more and more companies and also solutions will be found to find a way to, yeah, to circumvent this issue. Mm, yeah, I mean, here at Scopia, we also see the need for, for a focus on, on, on ESG, as we have seen a yeah, steadily increasing demand from, from investor side and other clients um, on the topic. And this is why, why right now we are also developing a rating products to, to address those needs. True. And yeah, ESG will either directly or indirectly affect every company and product mm -hmm. because just because of the focus in the market from consumers and uh, etc. And also from a risk perspective, then it's important to consider yeah the potential implications this could have on yeah different different industries and companies. And um, our last topic for this month is, is touching on we what we discussed in our last flight, actually, um, namely the upcoming or rather ongoing consolidation of the European airline market. According to, to several sources, Lufthansa is willing to invest up to 200 million in Alitalia. Also, at the beginning of this month, um, IAG announced that they had agreed to buy Air Europa for, for 1 billion euro and that the acquisition is expected to be completed in the second half of uh, 2020. That means that IAG will then be operating yeah, around 85% of seats of air, all seats sold domestically in Spain through its Iberia, Vueling and uh, now uh, Europa. Yeah, and I also heard that IAG hopes that this move will help them establish Madrid actually as the premier European hub. Yeah, it seems this, this will be the case, yeah, and IAG is doing very well compared to many of the competing airlines. However, they, as, as, yeah, as all the other airlines, of course, they're also being hit by, by rising fuel costs and also the BA pilot strike, which they undoubtedly felt financially. Um, but uh, also IAG reported a 7% fall in operating profits last quarter compared to, to, to last year, and it is likely going to have an even tougher market going forward. But um, yeah, size does seem to matter in the aviation industry. So this acquisition is, in my opinion, at least uh, a sound one. Yeah, I agree, Frank. Um, but it also has potential implications for the airlines, though. Um, IAG was, um, yeah, they were, was, were also at one point interested in buying Norwegian. Um, mm -hmm. At least rumors said so. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But the acquisition never went through. Um, and so the question is, is does that mean that IEG no longer have any interest in Norwegian? And also, Norwegian has a large presence in the Spanish market, but their market share has been steadily shrinking lately. Um, so this could be an even bigger blow for Norwegian with such a strong IEG presence in that market. Yeah, and, and Ryanair is also so certainly following this development with yeah with a certain interest. As um, I mean, they are the leading airline when it comes to international flights out of Spain. Um, not to mention um, Air France Calam, which which was hoping for a joint venture with Air Europa, which seems rather unlikely now to to yeah to put it mildly. Yeah, definitely, and and it's a similar story on the Alitalia side. Um, Delta's been in talks to mm -hmm. consider uh, investing into Alitalia. I think hundred million euros was mentioned, 
and the deadline for the binding bids originally was on the 15th of October, if I remember correctly. But uh, I now read that they've been extended to November uh, 21st. Mm -hmm. So yeah. if Lufthansa is now on the ball as well, uh, the question is if um, will this bid again, will they bid against each other? Um, and Alitalia will end up at a higher price than what they expected? I mean, if, if the market rumors are true that Lufthansa is willing to pay um, 200 million, it will be interesting to see who, who, who wants it the most. Um, for Lufthansa, in, investing in Alitalia would make a lot of sense when it comes to the associated slots. That's true, uh, but of course not at any price. No, um, no. And if it turns out, yeah, if it turns into a bidding war between Delta and Lufthansa, Either airline could end up agreeing to terms such as, yeah, you know, fewer staff cuts or allowing the unions to have an even stronger grip on the airline. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Helen, but um, please, please don't mention the unions. I mean, <laughs> another shout out. Shout out to Lufthansa for, for cancelling my flights, actually, because of the strike. So thank you very much for that. Um, but even though, um, back on topic, <laughs> but even though Alitalia could be a wise acquisition for Lufthansa, I mean, hopefully they will not be tempted to, 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 to make such concessions. Yeah, no, I, I think they would potentially buy them if they got it for the right price, but I think they're also aware of the pitfalls. Yeah, they, they, they certainly are, and um, it will be interesting to see if this deal materializes. Um, anyways, um, I believe that is all we have for you today. I think so, running out of time here. Um, yeah, hopefully you enjoyed uh, Flight 003, and we'll tune in again in December for our Christmas flight. So, this ends today's episode. Please feel free to leave your comment or requests for topics with us, or simply reach out to Helen or me on LinkedIn. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and spread the word, if you like this format and its content. We hope you're tuning in again next month for our next flight. <laughs>